0: The story is told of a king in Africa who had a close friend with whom he grew up. The friend had a habit of looking at every situation that ever occurred in his life, positive or negative, and remarking, this is good. One day, the king and his friend were out on a hunting expedition. The friend would load and prepare the guns for the king. The friend had apparently done something wrong in preparing one of the guns, for after taking the gun from his friend, the king fired it, and his thumb was blown off. Examining the situation, the friend remarked, as usual, "'This is good,' to which the king replied, "'No, this is not good,' and proceeded to send his friend to jail." About a year later, the king was hunting in an area that he should have known to stay clear of. Cannibals captured him and took him to their village. They tied his hands, stacked some wood, set up a stake, and bound him to the stake, ready to eat him. As they came near to set the fire of the wood, they noticed that the king was missing a thumb. Being superstitious, they never ate anyone who was less than whole. So, untying the king, they sent him on his way. As he returned home, the king was reminded of the event that had taken his thumb and felt remorseful for his treatment of his friend. He went immediately to the jail to speak with his friend. "'You are right,' he said. "'It was good that my thumb was blown off.' And he proceeded to tell the friend all that had just happened." And so I'm very sorry for sending you to jail for so long. It was bad of me to do this. No, his friend replied, this is good. What do you mean this is good? How could it be good that I sent my friend to jail for a year? The king's friend replied, if I had not been in jail, I would have been with you, eaten by the cannibals. What is good and what is bad is very subjective because it is often defined by our own perspective, experience, and bias. And a sinful world often clouds the distinctions between the two to the point of us even siding with or feeling sympathetic to those who are clearly in the wrong or us seeing our wrongs as somehow someone else's fault or as a natural byproduct of the environment in which we live. We see this to be the case in the story of Cain and Abel. As we continue our sermon series titled When Giants Walk the Earth, we want to take a look at Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel to draw out some biblical principles to clearly identify what God sees as truth to live by as it relates to our attitude in worship, our emotions in sin, our sense of justice in our life's ambitions. And we need to apply these biblical principles so as not to blur the lines of good and bad and live God's best in this life and in the life to come. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 4 as we study verses 1 to 26, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. I read now Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to the first part of verse 5. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Here, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve had two sons, whom they named Cain and Abel. Both had different job responsibilities as they grew up. Cain worked the fields, and Abel was a shepherd. Now, it's not indicated here in the text that one job was better than the other. Both types of work were admirable and necessary for the family to survive. We're told that both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. Naturally, Cain brought fruit from the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock to offer to the Lord. But verses 3 and 4 tell us that the Lord accepted the offering of Abel, but did not accept the offering of Cain. Now, what would have caused God to accept one but not the other? It should be noted in these verses that Abel's offering to the Lord was the firstborn or the first of His blessing, while it is not mentioned that Cain's offering was the first fruits of the harvest. And also, Abel offered up the fats of which there is no parallel statement said of Cain's offering. Offering the first of what you have in the Old Testament is an acknowledgement that all good things come from God as the one who determines what you are blessed with, while fats signify the best given to God. So for Abel, his offering reflected his heart of worship when he gave the best to God, and his worship through offering was a priority in his life because of who God is. Abel's actions exhibited the right attitude that needs to accompany the worship of the one true God. On the other hand, we can only surmise that Cain's attitude was not in the right place because his offering was not the best. Perhaps he only gave out of his abundance, nor was it at the forefront of his mind, perhaps given as an afterthought. However, we cannot be dogmatic about the reason because the Bible doesn't tell us why God accepted one offering but not the other. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 may give us some more insight. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4, "'By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks.'" In the book of Hebrews, we are told that God accepted Abel's offering because of his faith. What is the difference between Abel's faith and Cain's faith? We aren't completely sure, but perhaps it can be said Abel's faith was demonstrated in his proper attitude and worship that evidenced itself through his actions. And my friends, we know this to be true in our lives. For example, we respect our parents or our teachers. Then our action is answering them properly addressing them respectfully, listening to and obeying them. But if our attitude is one of rebellion, then our actions would look very different. We would ignore them. We would disregard their advice. Similarly, our faith in our Lord is demonstrated in our attitudes as we worship Him through our actions. If we take the worship of God for granted or don't give it the proper priority in our lives that it deserves or don't even give the worshiping of God the proper respect it demands… It speaks a lot about the faith we have in our God. For example, if we believe that our God is truly omnipotent, sovereign, righteous, holy, then I'm certain our attitudes and actions towards the worship of God would be one of reverence and priority. When we worship God, the most important aspect is our attitude, and it's nothing to do with, for example, what you wear, unless what you wear helps you with your attitude. Dave McFadden notes, well-meaning Christians argue for formal dress when coming to church with questions like, if you met the president, wouldn't you dress in your finest clothes? At first, this sounds right, but think about it. When my kids tuck in our two-year-old grandson and say a prayer with him, is that okay? Even though he's lying in bed and wearing his pajamas, is it okay for me to pray while mowing the lawn in my work clothes? When driving, is it okay to sing songs of praise even though I'm dressed in shorts and a T-shirt? I never once said, wait, I can't do that now. I'm not wearing the right clothes to approach God. What is most important is our attitude in worship because if your attitude is really set for worship, regardless of what you are wearing as you worship virtually or face-to-face, your actions demonstrate the attitude of your heart. So when you set aside a weekly time for worship, do you take away all of the distractions? Do you put that worship as a priority? Do you sing along with the songs? Do you read the scriptures? Do you open up your Bibles and take notes? Do you engage in prayer? Do you pray that God would teach you a lesson? Do you pray that you would apply it in your life and do so? These are all actions that demonstrate the attitude of worship, true worship, that you have in your heart. Since right attitudes lead to right actions with regard to the worship of God, our heart attitude needs to be in the right place, or we may be simply going through the motions like Cain. Why does this all matter? Because God's acceptance of our worship and offering is what we should desire and strive for. It should be clear from this passage that while we can all go through the motions of worship, not all offerings and not all worship is accepted by God if the attitude is not in the right place. Let me repeat that. While we can all go through the motions of worship, not all offerings or worship is accepted by God if the attitude is not in the right place. And here we have our first biblical principle, biblical principle number one. True worship is God's acceptance of what we offer in a right attitude as evidenced by appropriate actions. True worship is God's acceptance of what we offer in a right attitude, as evidenced by appropriate actions. The emphasis is on God's acceptance of our worship and offerings, not necessarily on what we actually do. So, for example, if we want to worship God by singing a song of praise, it is not through a perfectly sung song that God accepts it as worship, but it is accepted as worship when that person who sings a song, although with some mistakes, really means it and lives it out. They live out the song of what they are singing. That is acceptable worship. A person singing the hymn, cleanse me, O God, as a song of worship while still harboring hidden sins will not have that song offered accepted by God. Or we worship God through the giving of our time and energy, but it's not done with our best effort, but instead through a careless and lazy approach as we do God's work. That it will not be accepted by God as our offering. Or we give money, but it's only given as an afterthought and not given joyfully. We are forced to give then it is not accepted by God as worship through offering. The focus of worship should be on God's acceptance of it, not on the actual offering itself. If Cain had given the first fruits and the best of his harvest which was indicative of a heart of true worship and faith in the one true God, then God would have accepted Cain's offering just like He did Abel's. My friends, attitudes determine actions. And while both Cain and Abel went through the action of worshiping God through offering, one was accepted and one was not because of the attitude that accompanied the offering. My friends, right attitudes lead to right actions. And having the right attitude is our cross to bear as followers of Jesus Christ. I like how the quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata put it, Please know that when I take up my cross every day, I'm not talking about my wheelchair. My wheelchair is not my cross to bear, neither is your cane or walk or your cross, neither is your dead-end job or your irksome in-laws. Your cross to bear is not your migraine headaches, not your sinus infection not your stiff joints. It is not your cross to bear. My cross is not my wheelchair. It is my attitude. Your cross is your attitude about your dead-end job and your in-laws. It is your attitude about your aches and pains, any complaints, any grumblings, any disputings or murmurings, any anxieties, any worries, any resentment, or anything that hints of a raging torrent of bitterness. These are the things God calls me to die to daily. Look with me now at the second part of verse 5 to verse 7. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Here the Bible tells us that when Cain realized that his offering was not accepted by God, but that his brother Abel's offering was, he got angry, he was furious, and it affected him physically as his countenance fell, meaning his face showed the anger in him as he let his emotions get the better of him. Now it's a bit ironic that Cain should be the one who is angry, when it should be God who is angry because he was wronged. Cain should have been asking for forgiveness, trying to make amends. Instead, all he did was to get angry, both at God and at Abel, both of whom did nothing wrong. If there was one who should have been angry, it should have been God, who after giving so many blessings to Cain, didn't even receive the right and proper worship through offering. While God knew the reason, He asked Cain in verse 6, why are you angry? And in verse 7, he tells Cain, If you do what is right, then your offering will also be accepted by me. The gracious God is not condemning Cain, but instead lovingly giving him encouragement to make amends and to do what is right the next time. God is saying to Cain, You have a chance to make it all right. You were wrong. Here is another chance. Here is an opportunity to learn from your mistakes and do what is right. However, if you don't do what is right or don't put in the effort to do what is right, sin lies at the door, meaning it's ready to attack you and take over you. Here God is giving Cain a loving warning to control his anger and redirect that anger to doing what is right instead of continuing to do what is wrong or else sin will dominate his heart. Cain has to nip the sin at the bud and to subdue it. My friends, this is a great reminder for us that we should deal with our sin problems head on. Don't let there be any slippage in your character and in your integrity because if we don't deal with sin when it first manifests itself or becomes evident, then it will continue to grow in your life to the point where it dominates who you are. God was lovingly warning Cain not to let anger, bitterness, sin find a foothold in his heart from which it will only continue to grow. But unfortunately, Cain didn't heed the warnings of God. Look at verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. We don't know the full details of what Cain and Abel were talking about or what they were doing in the field, but apparently that seed of anger and bitterness remained in Cain, and it exploded with rage that he killed his brother Abel. 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 to 12 gives us some more insights as to why Cain killed his brother. 1 John chapter 3 verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. In the context of 1 John The implication is that Cain no longer loved his brother Abel. The hate in him was because of his jealousy that his brother's actions were righteous and that his were evil. Anger led to hatred that overpowered the love he should have had for Abel. Unfortunately, in his anger, Cain allowed sin to take over him, with all the ugliness of sin coming out in the forms of jealousy, bitterness, hate and other sinful expressions to the point that he would kill his brother Abel, his own brother Abel, for doing the right thing. Some have asked if this was a heat-of-the-moment murder or premeditated murder. We're not told in the biblical text, but in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we're told that if a murder took place in the field where the cries of the help of the victim could not be heard, that murder was to be considered premeditated. Now, whatever the circumstances, this was the first murder recorded in the Bible and a terrible tragedy. You may think that this is an extreme example of what happens when anger and bitterness are left unchecked, but it really doesn't happen every day. My friends, this is a true picture of the sinful human nature we all have, and this is a picture of what we are all capable of if sin is left unchecked and emotions are undealt with. Never be surprised by the ugliness of sin, especially coupled with unrestrained emotions. Remember Joseph's brothers who wanted to do the same and kill Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, verse 20, because of their jealousy of their father's favoritism? Or when Esau tried to kill Jacob? Or when the Pharisees were determined to kill Jesus because of their jealousy for Him? Think about the countless road rage incidents where you have a driver kill another in the heat of the moment in their anger, or the many stories we've heard or read about today in the news where anger and rage were the motives for both premeditated and spontaneous murder. The sinful human nature is capable of this. That's why God's warning that sin left unchecked will overtake us, will overpower us. So what Cain did really shouldn't be a shock to each and every one of us because that is what happens when you cannot control your emotions coupled with leaving sin unchecked. And here we have our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Uncontrolled emotions coupled with undealt-with sins often lead to tragic actions with terrible consequences. Uncontrolled emotions coupled with undealt-with sins often lead to tragic actions with terrible consequences. This should be a warning for all of us for how quickly sin leads us down a downward spiral as we see how simple jealousy, a wrong action, uncontrolled anger, and misdirected resentment at those not at fault lead to murder. We are all susceptible to this when we are the center of our own world, as Paul David Tripps puts it. He shares these words. He may have been the hardest person I've ever counseled. He was self-assured and controlling. He argued for the rightfulness of everything he had ever done. He acted like the victim when, in fact, he was the victimizer. He had crushed his marriage and alienated his children. He loved himself and had a wonderful plan for his life. It was his will, in his way, at his time, all the time. He made everyone a slave to his plan, or he drove them out of his life. He made incredible sacrifices to get what he wanted, but chafed against the sacrifices God called him to make. But in a moment of grace I will never forget, Paul writes, he quit fighting, controlling, and defending. He asked me to stop talking and said, Paul, I get it. I've been so busy being God that I've had very little time or interest in serving God. It was one of the most accurate moments of self-diagnosis I'd ever experienced. He was right. No sooner had the words come out of his mouth than he began to weep like I've never seen a man weep. His body shook with grief as grace began its work of freeing him from his bondage to himself. But my friend was not unique. If you're a parent, you know that your children are collections of self-sovereignty, All a child really wants is his own way. He doesn't want to be told what to eat, what to wear, when to go to bed, how to steward his possessions, or how to treat others. He wants to be in the center of his own little world and to write his own set of rules. And he is surprised when you have the audacity to tell him what to do. But it isn't just children. Sin causes this self-sovereignty to live in all of us, We tend to want more control than we are wise enough or strong enough to handle. We want people to follow our way and to stay out of our way. But when we wish for these things, we're forgetting who we are, who God is, and what grace He has blessed us with. You see, we're either always mourning the fact that we aren't getting our way or celebrating grace which welcomes us to a new and better way. So what will it be? My friends, deal with sin. And take control of your emotions so you and I don't fall into emotional deception. In 1930, in a small town in Oklahoma, one high school seemed to lose all the football games they played against their arch rivals from a neighboring school. The more important the game, the worse they lost. Finally, a wealthy oil producer who was an alumni of this school and hated to see the losing decided to take matters into his own hands. He asked to speak to the team in the locker room, yet after another devastating defeat. What followed was one of the most fantastic football speeches of all times. This businessman proceeded to offer a brand new Ford pickup truck to every boy on the team and to every coach if they would simply defeat their bitter rivals in the next game a week later. The team went crazy with sheer delight. They howled and cheered and slapped each other. For seven days, the boys ate, drank and breathed football. At night, they dreamed about touchdowns. The entire school caught the spirit of ecstasy and a holiday fever pervaded the campus. Each player could visualize himself behind the wheels of a gorgeous new truck. Finally, the big night arrived and the team assembled in the locker room. Excitement was on an unprecedented high. The coach made several innate comments, and the boys hurried out to face the enemy. They assembled on the sidelines, put their hands together and shouted a simultaneous, Ra! Then they ran onto the field and were demolished and defeated 38-0. to The team's exuberance did not translate into a single point on the scoreboard. Seven days of hurrah and hoop to do simply couldn't compensate for the player's lack of discipline, their lack of conditioning and practice, their lack of study and coaching, their lack of drill and experience, and their lack of character. Such is the nature of emotion. It can lead us not to truth, but to deceptions. Uncontrolled emotions coupled with undealt-with-sins often lead to tragic actions with terrible consequences. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Here the Bible tells us that the omniscient, all-seeing God knew what had happened And so he questioned the perpetrator of this evil deed, even though Cain tried to hide what he did. Cain's response was that he was not responsible to keep track of his brother Abel's whereabouts as his so-called brother's keeper. But the Lord knew and indicts Cain, saying that Abel's blood cries out to him from the ground. These verses should serve as an encouragement for us who are on the receiving end of injustice and false accusations. The God who sees all will make sure that all is accounted for. You see, my friends, in God's system of eternal rewards for the believer in heaven and implied degrees of punishment for unbelievers in hell, everyone's actions will be accounted for. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and Revelations chapter 20, verse 12, talks about God calling to account all of our actions for both the believers and unbelievers. We have the wrong notion that just because God forgives sins and remembers them no more, that there are no consequences to sin because all we have to do is ask for forgiveness. So sin and ask for forgiveness and all is well. All is forgiven and forgotten without any consequences. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's wrong theology and theology misapplied. When our sins are forgiven as believers our sins are remembered no more in the sense that it will not be used against us as evidence that we are not deserving of heaven. When we place our trust in Jesus, we are justified, declared righteous. So once we ask for forgiveness for our sins through the blood of Jesus and truly mean it, then God doesn't punish us more for those forgiven sins. But that doesn't mean He reverses all of the consequences of our sins, like getting us out of jail or making us not deal with the resulting issues, or even having to mend broken relationships. We still have to do those things. Forgiveness of sins means that God doesn't act on those sins anymore so that we don't always have to wonder if we will go to heaven or not, or wonder if what is happening to us today is because of some sin in the past which requires daily repentance so those things that are happening to us today will go away. Through the blood of Jesus... Sins are forgiven. That's what the Bible says. But sin has lasting consequences. Now back to the story. God's perfect investigation of Abel's murder, even with Cain's denial, should encourage us that justice will be done in all cases of sin and injustice because of God's holiness, justice, grace, and mercy, all balanced perfectly. And we'll see it play out in the next verses as God doles out Cain's punishment. Look at me at verses 11 and 12. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. God's punishment for Abel's murder was that Cain was unable to enjoy having interaction with God. He was driven away from the safety of his family and home and alienated from them. The work he did to cultivate until the earth would not yield the positive results it once did, which would require him to work even harder, and he would not be able to settle down. He would always have to wander the earth just to keep alive. And in response to these deserved punishments, Cain cried out in verses 13 to 14. And Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is greater than I can bear.'" Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Cain complains about the punishment being too great. Imagine, he could have humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. He could have asked the Lord what he could do to make up for the terrible things he did. But instead, he complained about the just punishment being too harsh, while the person who was murdered is unable to even speak out. It gives you a glimpse into the unrepentant heart of Cain. In a sense, he was blaming God for the punishment he so deserved. It's like someone in prison complaining about the food he was eating, that it wasn't yummy enough, or that the Internet isn't fast enough in the prison cell, which is ridiculous. At the end of verse 14, we read that Cain is afraid that without the safety net of his family and having to fend for himself in a harsh environment where he's unable to really settle down and find safety, that someone would come along and kill him to perhaps avenge the death of Abel, maybe someone from Abel's family. Now, should God really be concerned about what Cain wanted? To me, his punishment seems light in comparison to the crime of murder. But in the midst of divine punishment, we see God's grace and mercy. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. In God's grace, he put a mark on Cain to protect him and to warn anyone who wanted to hurt or kill him that they would have to answer to God, who would punish them seven times more than Cain. Now, some have asked me, what was this mark? The Bible simply doesn't tell us. Ancient Jewish traditions have suggested that it was the word Yahweh, or that a horn grew out of his forehead. Others have suggested it was simply his name. Whatever the mark was, it protected Cain and served as a warning for all, a reminder of Cain's sin and expulsion, but also of His protection. This was really a picture of God's grace. And here we draw out our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. No wrongdoing escapes the all-seeing eyes of a wise God whose justice is always fair and whose grace is always evident. No wrongdoing escapes the all-seeing eyes of a wise God whose justice is always fair and whose grace is always evident my friends, this may be hard for us to accept because we wonder how God can be both fair and gracious. But this is simply a truth we have to live in tension with and be comfortable with because we are not all-seeing, nor are we all-wise. But from this truth, we see a God whom we can find comfort in because as one who is the recipient of injustice, we can be reminded of God's perfect and fair justice, And as one who has committed wrongdoings, we know that God's grace is always there, so we have hope. Steve Baums once wrote, Over the years, several images have been helpful to me in understanding the relationship between justice and mercy. One image is a depiction of the Greek goddess Themis. Popular culture calls Themis Lady Justice. She's often depicted as having a blindfold, holding scales, and a sword. Another image that has always been a powerful one to me is at the Lake County Courthouse in Painesville, Ohio. This is an old-style courthouse built of limestone with impressive peaked roof. It is the only courthouse that I know of that has a large limestone statues of Cain and Abel flanking its front steps. Why would a courthouse display Cain and Abel? Because, of course, Cain's trial was the first murder trial. Do you remember the results of that trial? Cain was convicted of murdering his brother, so justice was served. Do you remember the sentence? Cain was expelled from paradise and sentenced to be a a restless wanderer on the earth. Do you remember what Cain said? He said to God, My punishment is more than I can bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. And so God responded by putting a mark on Cain so that no one could kill him. What was the result of the first murder trial of all time? God combined justice with mercy. Now look with me at verses 16 to 17. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. The Bible tells us that he left the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, meaning wanderings. His wife, who is presumably his sister or niece, as Genesis chapter 5 verse 4 tells us that Adam and Eve had other children, bore him a son named Enoch. This is not the same righteous Enoch in Genesis 5 who didn't die. Now, an issue that is often brought up is that if Cain married his sister or niece, why was this allowed by God, as this is incest? That's a great question, and should be answered. God first prohibited sexual relationships with siblings, parents, half siblings, and aunts and uncles in Leviticus chapter 18 as part of the Mosaic Law. It was then that marrying a close relative was a sin and considered incest. Prior to this prohibition in Leviticus chapter 18, in the early centuries of man's history, it was not considered incest when you married a close relative. First of all, it was out of necessity, as Adam and Eve were the only human beings, so their children had to marry, just like the grandchildren of Noah had to marry each other after the flood. Second, the reason incest is frowned upon and greatly discouraged today is because marrying close relatives would greatly increase genetic abnormalities, because the children would inherit two recessive genes. In the early centuries of mankind, Genetic mutations and abnormalities due to sin entering the world was greatly minimized. But by the time of the Mosaic Law and when it was given, it was no longer safe to marry close relatives. So again, marrying close relatives wasn't considered incest until its prohibition at the time of the law, and it should not be practiced today. Now, one would assume that God would not allow His family to succeed because of what Cain did and the curse he placed on him. But yet in another example of God's grace, God allowed Cain's family to succeed in life. Cain was the first in human history to lead in the building of cities. He could be considered the first architect or the first urban planner. And he named the city after his firstborn, Enoch. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begot Mehujael. And Mehujael begot Methuselah. And Methuselah begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. One of Cain's descendants, his great-great-great grandson Lamech, was the first in recorded human history to break from God's ordained plan for marriage and became a polygamist, one who had more than one wife. He took two wives. This was never God's desire. Remember, in Genesis 2, verse 24, God instituted marriage to be between one man and one woman. This was the God-ordained picture for marriage. And while He disapproved of it, God permitted it because of man's sin. But nowhere in the Bible does God condone this practice of polygamy. And it became common practice in the ancient Near East, including many men of the Bible. Understand that there are sins that God permitted but does not approve of. Now, before you think ill of God, thinking that He overlooks sin and He gives people a pass, that He is somehow unjust in how He doles out punishment, remember, as I've said many a times, if God were to punish us for every sin we commit, we probably wouldn't live past our teenage years. Just because God doesn't immediately punish for sins doesn't mean He overlooks or approves of the sin. I like this illustration where you have a police officer who stops you for speeding. Did you break the law? Yes. Is he just in giving you a ticket? Yes. Now, if he chooses to give you a break, does that mean that everyone else he stops doesn't deserve a ticket? No. It means he showed you grace and didn't give you what you deserve. But it doesn't mean that no one else should get a ticket. We should know that in almost every case where there is polygamy involved, the multiplicity of wives caused many problems for the family. Just look at the families of Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and so on. Anyway, just to note that it was the descendants of Cain that broke away from God's plan for marriage and practiced polygamy. Look at me at verse 20, and Adab or Jabal He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Lamech's son Jabal was the inventor of herding and shepherding, a practice that would have made him very wealthy as he would be able to quickly multiply his herds, which is really the currency of the day. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Lamech's other son, Jubal, was the inventor of musical instruments, specifically the harp, the string instruments, and the flute, the wind instruments, and progressed the cause of music. Seems like a pretty impressive family so far. Look at verse 22. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech's other son, through his second wife Tubal-Cain, was the one who technologically advanced the making of weapons and tools using bronze and iron, making life easier for mankind. He could be called the first technologist or scientist. Seems like a pretty impressive family that really contributed to the advancement of human civilization. If you had a son or daughter in today's context, you would want your son and daughter to be married into this family of Cain because they were leaders in music, technology, society, and business. But notice that in spite of all of their achievements by God's grace, there was no hint of a godly heritage or spiritual accomplishments. It seems that the stain of what Cain had done was masked by all of this advancement and development. This ungodly family line cared nothing about spiritual things, even though God's grace was upon them. Look what Lamech said when he saw the success of his children about what he wants his lasting legacy for his family to be. Verses 23 and 24. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed the man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold." Lamech's mindset was that he would get even with those who would even dare to take advantage of his family or himself. If anyone hurt him, if anyone hurt his family, he would be ready to be more forceful than his forefather Cain and kill them, even as he has already killed people who have tried to hurt him. He was a murderer. Strength through violence and vengeance would be the legacy of this family, the family of Cain. Here's the family that had it all, and they wanted to protect all of it at all costs. This was a family that prided in the glory they believed they deserved. Now, in contrast, we have the family of Seth, and here's what the Bible says about his family. Look at verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then man began to call on the name of the Lord. We're told in verse 25 that God blessed Adam and Eve with another son named Seth, who would take the place of the godly Abel. We would hope that Seth's family would also contribute a lot to human civilization. After all, Cain received nine verses that talked about the contribution of his family to human civilization— But here, Seth only gets two verses. And what was his only contribution, as spoken of in Scripture? It was that after the birth of Enosh to Seth, the grandson of Adam and Eve, that man began to publicly worship God. Seth's contribution to human society and civilization was the public worship of God as the wickedness of men continued to grow after Adam and Eve fell. The people largely forgot about God and seemed to only focus on their own achievements and the advancement of human accomplishments. However, it took the righteous family of Seth to serve as a light in this very dark environment. From an outsider's perspective, the family of Seth doesn't sound like a very successful family. Their only contribution to society was to cause people to turn to the worship of God. And yet, as we will find out, It is this contribution to society that would save all of humanity. The family of Seth's contribution in spiritual influence in their generation is something we are to strive for and emulate in our generation. For you see, my friends, a spiritual legacy and influence is the greatest of all legacies you and I can leave. How many people have come to know Christ because of you and how you live your life? How many of your friends and family know Christ through you? Have you modeled Christ's likeness to them so that they would want to follow Jesus Christ? And here we have our fourth biblical principle, biblical principle number four. Living a godly life and leaving a spiritual legacy are what is most important to God, even over great accomplishments. Living a godly life and leaving a spiritual legacy are what is most important to God even over great accomplishments. Remember that your earthly successes in life, whether it be in the field of education, business, music, your professional life, your family life, should never come at the cost of your own spiritual life and the godly legacy and influence you leave because the spiritual life that you cultivate is the spiritual legacy you leave with your friends and family, and it may be what saves them. The Scriptures tell us not to admire the family of Cain, but point to the family of Seth for us to emulate and follow. Because looking ahead in our series, in chapter 6, with the worsening wickedness of man, in spite of their many advancements, including the building of the great tower at Babel, God was going to destroy the whole world with flood. But it was only to the righteous family of Noah who is from the godly line of Seth that worshiped and obeyed the one true God that would save all of humanity. Now, my friends, please listen carefully. I'm not here to diminish anyone's successes and contributions to society in the areas of science, business, medicine, music, and so on. I'm just here to remind all of us about the importance of factoring in a godly spiritual component that should be the most important aspect of our contribution to society and in our spheres of influence. Because in the eyes of the Lord, it is our spiritual influence and our godly contributions that matter. You can be a successful businessman, but make sure you are a Christ-honoring successful businessman. You can be a world-famous scientist or inventor, but make sure you are a Christ-honoring one. You can be an accomplished musician But make sure you bring Christ into focus in your artistic world. Like Seth, can it be said of you in whatever field you're in, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That because of you, people started to worship God. It is this spiritual legacy that is most important to God. In a sinful world where good and bad is subjective to one's own perspectives and opinions, We turn to God's word to learn and apply unchanging principles of how the one true God desires for us to live our lives. As it relates to our attitude in worship, remember number one, true worship is God's acceptance of what we offer in a right attitude as evidenced by appropriate actions. As it relates to our emotions and sin, remember number two, uncontrolled emotions coupled with undealt with sins often lead to tragic actions with terrible consequences. As it relates to our sense of justice, remember, number three, no wrongdoing escapes the all-seeing eyes of a wise God whose justice is always fair and whose grace is always evident. As it relates to our life's ambitions, remember, number four, living a godly life and leaving a spiritual legacy are what is most important to God, even over great accomplishments. My friends, living out these four biblical truths from an unchanging God will help us enjoy God's best in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. These biblical truths are a great reminder of how we need to live our lives in this world. I pray, Lord, that we can be a light in this very dark world to show the difference of what living for Christ really entails. I pray that we will desire to follow you in all things, that we will desire to live out Scripture in a way that is not only head knowledge, but is lived out in action. And I pray, Lord, that how we live our life as an offering to you will be acceptable in your sight. Father, that you will be well pleased with each and every one of us in every day that we live this life. Father, I pray that we would seek you for help in all things that we can indeed leave a lasting spiritual legacy and influence for our friends and our family. Bless us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.